0: Welcome back to episode four of the Heart Podcast, everyone. My name is Omar Omendia, and I'm happy to be with all of you today. You know, there exists an incredible amount of talent found at each of our institutions, and that couldn't be more true at UConn. Joining us today are two instructors who are rising stars from the fields of engineering and sociology, but there are countless intersections within them. Helping me introduce our guest is my friend and colleague, Kelly Schlabach, a first-year doctoral student at UConn, and a graduate assistant at ODI. Thank you so much for joining me. Take it away, Kelly.
1: Thanks, Omar. Our first guest is Dr. Anna Marie Lachance, a chemical engineer and STEM educator with numerous professional and creative projects. Through her teaching, work, podcast named Rule 63, social media presence, and local political organizing, she is an advocate for abolitionist engineering education and intersectional trans-feminism. Our second guest, Manuel Manny Ramirez, is a PhD candidate at the University of Connecticut's Department of Sociology. Manny's dissertation project examines the relationship between race, empire, and migration by exploring how Cubans with family members living abroad navigate changing social, political, and economic landscapes. You can read Manny's work published in Sociological Inquiry with Dr. Faye Chubin, Humanity and Society with Dr. Eric Withers, International and Shermanal Justice Review, American Behavioral scientists with Drs. Wendy Moore and David Embrick, and Sociation. Thank you both so much for joining us and for taking the time to share more about how your journey and inquiry guides your work. Let's get started!
0: We would like to begin by acknowledging that the land on which we gather is the territory of the Mohegan, Mashantucket Pequot, Eastern Pequot, Scaticoke, Golden Hill Paw Gusset, Nipmuc, and Lenape peoples, who have stewarded this land throughout the generations
2: so let's just dive in so we're going to pose a question and the question is what does anti-racist teaching mean to you and I'm going to kick it off first to Manny
3: well um, so to try to answer this question I kind of want to break down what we mean by racism to what we understand by racism right because I think how we understand racism will definitely inform what we mean by anti-racism and also anti-racism teaching uh, so, for me, you know, as a as a sociologist, I understand racism to be a, a social, political, and global system uh, of power, privilege, and exploitation, okay? And this is rooted in a form of human differentiation that is based on this idea of race, right? So, it's also this acknowledgement that race is this social construct. It's only real in the social sense, not in any biological sense, right? And so this this understanding of racism is also to, you know, be clear and say that racism is is much, much more than just individual prejudice or discrimination, right? Um, It definitely encompasses these things, uh, but it cannot be reduced to just simply uh, a form of bias, right, or or interpersonal conflict, right? Um, So then uh, with that kind of understanding in mind, for me, anti-racism is then this practice of disrupting, Uh, resisting and the lofty goal of hopefully dismantling the system, you know, and so while unlearning biases, you know, resisting, uh, racist assumptions that that we may, uh, have, have learned growing up. And so forth, these things are important. It's only 1 component of, of anti racism in my view. Right? So then what is anti racist teaching? Right? That's 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 your question right for me anti-racist teaching is both learning and unlearning right again kind of um, understanding that um, in the context of the us right um, we are not trying to only learn about the racist uh, past and and ongoings of, of what is experienced in this country and also around the world right but again unlearning different assumptions that are routinely and repeatedly um you know presented whether it be through you know media or 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 whatever institution right so anti-racism teaching is for me to acknowledge if if racism is this system essentially designed to divide and conquer right that's based on this idea of race then for me effective anti-racism or anti-racism teaching should strive to build sort of uh, connections around collective resistance Right. So, you know, uh, me, Dave and Embrick have had many conversations and he always kind of comes to this point of the importance of collective action. And I very much agree with him and uh, pass it over to Anna.
4: Sure. I mean, it's a it's a massive question and I don't think there's any ever any one answer (laughs) to the question. But what I come back to as a a student of abolition and as a reader of bell hooks (laughs) is transgression and healing if you go back to bell hooks teaching to transgress one of my favorite books about teaching it's about connection and it's about healing you know it's about getting people to understand the connections between institutional racism and structural racism and what they do every day so i'm in chemical engineering and a lot of STEM people in general are um, paralyzed to find the connection between something like systemic racism or even inter- interpersonal racism and, you know, polymer nanocomposites or whatever the heck they work on. Um, but if you look hard enough, you realize that racism is a system that permeates everything we do and how our entire society is structured. So if you look hard enough and you keep asking questions and keep pulling back the curtain, you realize that it touches everything. And so approaching engineering education from an anti-racist perspective means finding those connections, bridging those gaps between STEM and social justice where you might not think there are any, and just doing that imagination work and doing that learning and healing work to find those connections.
5: It's interesting. Um, I agree with, with, with both of you. I think Professor Santos would agree. Omar, you agree that 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 was a thumbs up for the for the audience that couldn't see that. Um, And we had a follow up question that was about. That was really centered on the importance of anti racism, how you saw the importance of anti racism, but I don't think I want to answer that question because it seems like from both of your answers to the previous question that you feel like anti racism is important. Really important and being an anti racist educator um, is important in the classroom, but I want to sort of. I want to I want to ask you a question about the challenges then of. Incorporating anti racism into the classroom. Um, Specifically, given that. You know, we know uh, 1 when we talk about racism that. Not everyone, but the majority of folks in society. Sort of think of it on an individual, not systemic level. They, they they may not know. They don't know what critical race theory is. Most of them don't know what systemic. Uh, the difference between if there is a difference between systemic, structural, institutional racism, and so they're centered on this idea. If we talk about racism, it's at the individual level. But there's also other folks that are like, why 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 talk about racism? Why not talk about sort of um, issues of gender, um, sexual orientation, class? Um, and so what are what are some of the challenges in in being? A, an anti-racism educator, does that preclude um, the ability to also challenge other systems of oppression in the classroom? And what would that look like? What does all this mean to you, to both of you?
4: Something that comes up for me is, I try to eat, sleep and breathe intersectionality. So almost never when we're talking about anti-racism or any of these topics, are we talking about just race? We're also talking about class and gender and all the myriad of things that connect to that. So what I do when I try to teach, for example, on environmental justice, issues of environmental injustice don't just affect people on an axis of color, of, you know, race, but also of class. It's also the poor and working class white people who are also getting impacted by environmental justice, having that intersectional component is important to sort of make that sell, that everyone is impacted by issues like this, by environmental injustice, by systemic racism, it's just that different people are disproportionately impacted. So that's what comes up for me. And I could tell you in my classroom, remarkably enough, I've had not a lot of resistance to talking about things like environmental justice or systemic racism in my classroom. I think a lot of young people kind of get it. I mean, everyone is obviously coming from a different place, a different level of education, but I was able to stand in front of 70 undergraduate chemical engineering students and talk about systemic racism, and I nods all across the classroom. The only negativity I personally got um, is in the student-teacher evaluation, someone accused me of being a liberal or, (laughs) you know, lib talking points, which I don't take offense to, except that I'm way further left than liberal. So that's my personal experience in teaching this course, maybe two times, but, and maybe those are, that's not a trend, that's two data points is not a trend as we all know, but fortunately, I think if you create an environment where conversation is welcome and you're transparent about your ability to narrate that, um, you can lead a successful conversation about anti-racism and other intersectional issues in STEM classrooms.
3: For me, um, I think you know, uh, Dave. You sort of uh, alluded to it a little bit, but this constant challenge of combating individualism and trying to get folks to think more structurally, institutionally. Things Anna was saying, um, and you know, in my classes, it's not always difficult to get students to, you know, start to apply what we call a sociological imagination right in sociology but in terms of resistance in terms of collective action to 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 breach this individual individualism and, and what i mean is this is that students do a great job and people in general right not just not just students do can 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 fully comprehend the structural systemic nature of racism and the the various systems of oppression that racism intersects with but it is so hard to break out of this thinking of, you know, for example, uh, anti-racism as this sort of individual, isolated act, which is why I sort of try really hard in my understanding and definition of anti-racism to emphasize the need for collectivity and sol- solidarity, right? Because many times, you know, we hear sort of in, in the popular dialogue of anti-racism. This kind of idea, well, where you, you can buy a copy of, of D'Angelo's book. You can buy a copy of Kendi's book and the work stops there because racism is really just about un- unlearning bias, right? But as I, I said, I think we know here and most of our audience understands that it takes much more to that. So, so I often run into this challenge of, of sort of. Trying to push students to think beyond that, right? And and some students definitely do. I mean, I every semester I have just a really inspiring group of students that I myself learn a lot from, right? I'm I'm always um, um, unlucky in that regard, but but I find that to be kind of a challenge. So far, I don't get a lot of pushback in terms of like, you know, racism doesn't exist. Similar to Anna, you know, some students unfortunately only vocalize sort of these uh i wouldn't say critiques but um comments in the evaluations right so i think a challenge is trying to get those particular students that may dismiss us as 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 liberals or or whatever they might say and and trying to get them to feel comfortable enough to to really express sort of their understandings in class in order for them to be to grow and and to contest these ideas right and what i mean is not to make Necessarily, space for them or special space for them, but you know, to sort of provide opportunities to contest various ideas, right, um, across the political spectrum. Um, and and I'll finish here. I apologize if I'm giving a, a longer answer, but uh, another another challenge I have is is demystifying uh, the United States, right, when we think about racism. So one of my favorite quotes from Du Bois. uh uh, about american democracy is that Du Bois actually says it's it's not yet been tried right and and that's in reference to the history of racism and also the history of capitalism and their intersections in the united states and i don't think i have to kind of remind this group or even our audience you know how this country still struggles for example just voter suppression and how that's racialized you know so so trying to also breach this this um this way that, uh, the United States as an entity is still sort of very uh, romanticized in a way.
5: so what classes do you teach Manny?
3: I teach uh, at UConn. I teach race and ethnicity, and I also okay. teach other courses such as social problems.
5: Okay, so so what I heard was 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 Anna, um, you you did mention like two points don't make sort of a trend. Um, and you're teaching a course on environmental justice, and Manny's teaching a course on sort of race and ethnic uh, oppression as well as social problems. Immediately, that comes to thought. Not not saying that there's, you know, that I'm dismissing your 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 uh, your words at all, but but. Some might say that these courses um in in many respects uh you 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 could be teaching to the choir right so so there's no there's no real pushback or maybe maybe there's minimal pushback because you know maybe students are sort of you know they're they're taking these courses with a specific uh you know uh, maybe a, a particular mindset about uh d e i j you know social justice work uh you know anti racism maybe not right but, but have you given thought to sort of, um, as you're teaching, what that might look like? Do you think that there would be additional challenges or do you feel like um, you may have to sort of rethink things if you were to teach other courses? Say sort of standard, uh, you know, just say basic required courses within your field, whatever that may be. I mean, I'll leave you to sort of um, answer what that looks like. Or how have your experiences within undergraduate courses, as an undergraduate or even as a graduate student, um shaped or 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 given you some sort of sense about how uh anti-racism uh, isn't taught adequately or
4: maybe it is taught adequately
5: how you might like have the, has that really influenced sort of how you think about your teaching moving forward
4: so when it when it comes to education um We scaffold everything. If you think about math education, first, there's two plus two, and then there's two times four, and then you go all the way up to calculus, right? That's very structured. That's very scaffolded. I don't think there's the same kind of scaffolding for anti-racist education in this country. There is no anti-racist education in this country. So every time you start a new course, you kind of got to, you know, uh, test the waters a little bit. I use this analogy a lot when it comes to, like, sexism and misogyny, you kind of sometimes, depending on who you're talking to, change your rhetoric. So if you're just sort of introducing some random cis guy to the idea of feminism, the first thing you tell them is, okay, well, you have a mother, you have a sister, you have daughters, whatever. That's why you should care about feminism, to get their foot in the door into these talking points. And then later you can go back and get them to the next rung of the ladder, which is, oh, you Shouldn't just care about women because you're related to them. You should care, just you should just care about people. And then all these sort of steps of the ladder and all the steps in the staircase. So that's that's part of the challenge when you're trying to teach a big topic like systemic racism or environmental justice in a standard chemical engineering course. You kind of have to test the waters a little bit. You kind of have to uh, sort of pass by them like, hey, by the way, later this semester, we're going to be talking about race. How do we feel about that and to sort of get the pulse of the classroom and something that I like to do is put the power in the students hands. So instead of just dictating to them about what I, a white person think about racism, uh, I. Try to give students of color in that class. The power to teach, so I open the conversation 1st day of class saying, hey, at some point in the semester, we're going to talk about environmental injustice and we're going to talk about race. As it pertains to chemical engineering. If there are any am- among you who are passionate about this topic um, and want to help me teach this subject, I'm all ears. I want to start meeting with you one-on-one and about you know where your class is at, what you think the best teaching approaches are for this class in this context. So I try to center all my classes in what is the you know specific context in which these students are coming from um, and coming to them in that, meeting people where they're at, sort of, but also challenging them and ha- finding that balance between meeting someone where, where they're at and challenging them to push even further, to go one step up in that ladder is a fine line to walk, but through collaborating with students and by listening to students of color as to what their experiences are um, and letting, even letting them lead sometimes where they're willing to do that educational labor, I think that can be really impactful.
3: I agree with Fauna. I'm, I'm listening to what Anna's saying, and I, I think this idea of scaffolding and meeting uh, students where they're at, there's a lot of value in that. And I'll admit that um, the way I talk about and teach race and racism in a race and racism course is different from how I teach my race and racism unit in my intro to uh, sociology course, right? Um, because I, I, I agree with this idea that we, to an extent, have to meet students where they're at because it doesn't it wouldn't make much sense for me to hit for example uh, a student introduction to sociology course who may have never really have read about sociology before or studies of race and racism and you know assign uh, a text on critical race theory right or intersectionality you know i i think maybe those readings can come later in the semester right i mean there's different ways to to kind of go about that um and I would definitely expect more. I've gotten a little bit more pushback on my lower level courses of social problems and intro to sociology uh, versus my upper level course of, of race and ethnicity. Um, that is that has definitely been my experience, but I also try to push myself to also not hold back in the sense of still delivering, you know, teachings about the full scope of, ra- of racism right in the US and across the globe. Maybe my readings will vary, right? I I might uh, assign more dense readings in my upper level courses, but I I still want to talk about intersectionality. I still want to talk about, uh, you know, how Du Bois talked about that racism is a global phenomenon that is very much tied to empire and to war and to capitalism and those sorts of things, right?
5: This is not a question, this is not, I'm just making a general comment here. I I, I wonder, I wonder, right? Um, Why not? Why, not? why do we have to meet students where they're at I'm just I'm just wondering like why right? right because 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 what we're assuming here is that whatever we're teaching constitutes some sort of normativity that we should adhere to right that white supremacy is a norm is sort of normativity that that status quo right side status quo is normativity how we how we teach how we fundamentally understand sociology political science economics engineering like you know any of those don't come with the biases already inherent from sort of kind of normative whiteness right and so and so in our teachings like we we sort of we we prance around um and walk on eggshells um and say that we need to sort of if we think of this as the baseline then then we're introducing some sort of foreign concept about sort of you know, transphobia or, or, or uh, hidden gender biases or racism or classism or something like that. And we need to be, you know, as opposed to sort of saying that, no, we live in a society that is, you know, steeped in, you know, larger systems of oppression, Right. And the very methods that we use when we think about how to do research and our white methods, we talk about statistics, but statistics has been racialized. We know that from Tukupu Zuberi's work in Thicker Than Blood. It's racialized. So why not think about anti-racism? And again, it's just a comment uh, as we're, as we're, as we're thinking here for the audience and for everybody else is like, why not sort of take that, um, take that 1st step in terms of really fundamentally, um, you know, um. Changing uh, sort of the way that we kind of approach all of our classes um, and and set the and set the bar, like, set the bar higher in terms of, like, this is the fundamental starting point. Right? We need to sort of we need to really interrogate everything. All these things that we think about. and 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 we'll we'll take this approach in terms of from from kind of the historical context to even the the fundamental uh you know minutia of ways that we can sort of talk about almost anything from mathematics to statistics to sort of politics to x y and z
4: yeah i mean just in response to that i do feel a responsibility as a white person especially as a white woman to say the really radical stuff that maybe people of color may not be able to get away with saying. Uh, by the end of the semester, in I'm saying in no uncertain terms that capitalism is a problem and will never fix um, these environmental and justice issues unless we start putting people over profit, among other things. I also like to ground conversations in reality and try to be emotionally honest with my students. I think part of, you know, racism is all about power and hierarchy, so I try to Break down power structures and hierarchical structures in my classroom and try to be honest with students about things like my mental health and the fact that there are anti trans bills sweeping the country right now. I'm not doing very okay. And that transphobia is real. Racism is real. And I try to be cognizant of what I can get away with saying and what other people might not get away with saying. I'm trying to use Karen powers for good.
3: I don't think I have much to add, but I, you know, I think in my courses, uh, I, I I, wonder about the assumptions I begin with and, and sometimes in courses, you know, about race or units on race. We might begin with the question, you know. Does racial inequality exist like I skip those sort of basic questions like, no, I say, no, the assumption here is that race and r- racism exists and to a very deep extent and and here are some readings and teachings. Um, to explore that that also explore the ways that. These systems have been resisted, um, you know, as scholars like Manning Marable. Remind us that these histories of oppression are also histories of resistance. So, for me, in, in any course, the way I kind of try to, um. Embrace anti racism as, as I try to see it is also always keeping that in in the. In the purview, right? Um, not not just the effects of racism, but in which uh, people are collectively, actively, ongoing resisting it, right? And so I, I also always try to incorporate very recent examples of racism, but also how people are resisting. So, for example, if I if I talk about um, you know detention centers now uh, in the U.S. currently, I also try to take time to talk about the hunger strikes that are going on, right? And the various ways people outside of the detention centers are mobilizing around to, to bring an end, to abolish them, to abolish detention, to abolish ICE, and those various things.
4: Yeah, to add to that whole point, I try to center resilience when I can in my classrooms, especially when talking about things like, you know, climate change, environmental injustice, that can get doom and gloom very quickly. But if I can show off examples of engineering innovations done by Indigenous communities or by poor communities around the world. You know, there's moisture farmers in Peru that are extracting water from the air to water their crops. That's amazing. And that's chemical engineering. They're doing it. so try to A, break down that barrier of what people think chemical engineering is. They think it's just something that happens in a lab or a factory, but it's what's happening in ovens every, you know, bread oven around the world. It's what's happening. And all these examples of you know different communities showing resilience against climate change. So again, to me, anti-racist and abolitionist, chemical engineering education shows students how to make those connections, how to reconnect with their own communities and what their communities are in need of, how to honor and uplift traditional indigenous and local knowledge sharing practices.
2: I love this conversation. I'm just sitting back and listening like, yes, 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 so much. Yes, I'm very excited for the future. Like, both of you as being current graduate students. I'm, I'm living for the work that you're currently doing as leaders in the classroom and, and leaders in your own right. And I'm wondering, how does, I guess, power in the classroom come into play? So you have. Fantastic and interesting identities in the sense that you can relate to being a student. You can relate to being staff. You're, you have a duality in, in so many ways. So how, how does that come into play for you?
4: So I transitioned during graduate school and during that transition, there was a point at which I was not out and a point at which I was out finally as a trans person. And that was like night and day from having to hide part of myself while going to the lab and doing research and mentoring students and doing all my responsibilities versus finally being out and being able to bring my full queer trans self into the lab and so i think about that a lot and i think about how other students of other backgrounds across gender lines race lines all of that might Not be bringing their full selves into the classroom and I just want to emphasize my experience and I want to emphasize you can bring your full self. Into the classroom, you can bring your unique knowledge sets into the classroom and try to be. I try to be very specific about that from day one of every course that I teach, Um, acknowledging that power dynamic between student and teacher and showing them that I'm a human showing them that I've struggled and showing them that no matter who they are. Their experiences matter. Yeah,
3: in terms of a graduate student, so I've for years I've struggled with even being transparent to my students that I am a graduate student uh, because I've been taught before that you know being an instructor is about authority markers and you have to try to present these authority markers and part of that sort of tension is maybe not being so transparent about being a graduate student because they may see that as you being inexperienced or, or whatever. And in the past couple of years, I have I've flipped that. I've, I've been trying to be as fully transparent about who I am, where I come from, you know, my privileges, where I stand. And it's only helped. It's only enriched the classroom. You know, uh, when I talk about my experiences as a, for example, a first generation college student and how I didn't know the difference between a master's degree or a dissertation degree up until you know my last semester as an undergrad you know that that really helps a lot of students so yeah i've, I've tried my best to sort of lean into it and and sort of trying to scare away from it and it, and it's helped i think it's it's helped me and the
4: students there's those two main aspects of teaching there's the content and then there's curating a classroom environment the content you know students can get anywhere it's 2022 if they want to know the derivations they're all on wikipedia they were done by white people hundreds of hundreds of years ago it's the real responsibility of a teacher now i feel is to curate a good learning environment and you cannot do that without being actively anti-racist and actively intersectional in your approach to teaching
3: i think another sort of a uh, part of it too is trying to deconstruct the binary of teacher student right mm-hmm. in in sort of this You know pedagogy of the oppressed sort of way which is hard to do right because many students come into the class whether sociology or not sociology or social science or not social science so trying to again like it's not enough to just say hey i'm I'm your instructor but you know we're all we all have something to contribute here in terms of knowledge right you kind of have to be active and proactive about it throughout the semester um, encourage them to do so And, you know, when I can pull that off, it only helps me to further strengthen my classes, Uh, not only just switch up readings, but switch up activities. And, um, you know, from my experience again, that's only enhanced. Um, So, so the more I can convince students that they have so much to offer, not only to each other, but to their own instructor, um, it it just, it just really um, kind of uplifts the, the whole situation for everyone.
4: What, what they tell you when you're taking classes on course design is you got to plan out all your learning outcomes, all your learning goals in advance. But what I like about breaking down the teacher-student binary is that there are emergent outcomes. So things that you don't plan for but come up, like the fact that several of my students uh, pointed out, you know, the their specific experience with environmental injustice in Waterbury, Connecticut, which is a very local, very specific example that um, a lot of students can relate to. Or people bringing up a totally different chemical reaction than I had planned to talk about because it fits with the theme of thinking about, you know, cost intensive and energy intensive processes. So giving power back to the students, it's scary, but it makes the class better. Let's let's let's
5: go back to a previous question that wasn't answered. I think the audience would be really interested in hearing sort of your undergraduate experiences and 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 whether or not your under undergraduate experiences at your institutions or just just alone and that journey um, influence your decision to to pursue graduate school, but also just in terms of thinking about all the things that you've been saying about sort of anti-racism, but also sort of global systems of, of oppression. Give us some insight into your world,
3: Um, I I can speak. Yeah, real quick about my undergrad experience. So, you know, I am who I am because of the people who have shaped me uh, throughout my life. Um, And it is because of the support of my family, probably number 1, but also the interventions of various um, instructors, but also peers in my life um, who've encouraged me and provided me support to be where I am today. Uh, in undergraduate, it was a person by the name of Marilyn Mayberry who said, "Hey, here's the ASA book of graduate programs. Look through it and go apply to graduate school." And then I was like, "Wait, what's a, what's graduate school?" And then she broke that down for me, and then and then that kind of became the process, right? So that whole experience, along with many other stories, um, have always instilled in me the importance of. Of trying to continuously try to encourage students, like no matter where they're at, right? And always remind myself that I was once a struggling undergraduate student and continue to be a struggling graduate student, trying to be that person to sort of make that positive intervention.
4: Yeah, the short version is that I went to grad school because I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. The real or longer answer is that when I was an undergrad, there were a couple of times where no shade to any specific instructor, but undergrad at UConn actually in chemical engineering. Times where I just stepped up as de facto TA because somehow by chance I was one of the only people who knew what was going on in the class. And so I led informal teaching sessions and I made slides and we all studied together and I shared around my equation sheet. So that was my first experience it's like being low key an instructor. And then for senior design, I met my advisor, Lou Yi Sun, who would eventually become my graduate advisor. He encouraged me to apply to grad school because he just really liked my writing style and the fact that I was such a good communicator to the company that we were working with for the senior design project. And so he saw in me that potential and he showed me a world that I barely knew existed. I know people got PhDs, but I hardly knew that that was an option for me. And so I try to reflect that now in terms of showing undergraduate students, students who are undergrads, what options are available for them? Because a lot of them just don't know. They don't know that they can get a gem fellowship and maybe go get their master's degree for free. They don't know about all these different opportunities and all these avenues for engaging. I have been able to successfully connect people to careers they didn't even imagine as a result of my teaching. I've had chemical engineering students go off and pursue environmental law, which they never thought they could do. I've had, I have a mentee who's getting a honors medal next week who is now going to graduate school because of my, well, not because of me, because of all her hard work she did, but also because she was my mentee in a research lab context. So always trying to understand that some students may not be fully aware of what career options or work options there are and just trying to. Open as many doors for as many people as possible because <laughs> I was a clueless undergrad I had no idea what I was doing I was just like classes classes classes
3: yeah and I think um going off of that you know because I, I think I was in a similar way and then trying to keep in mind like all the challenges that I've had in undergrad um, they still exist and and are much harder right um So thinking through the effects of the pandemic, and and then even though we're hopefully past the the worst of the peaks, right, uh, you know, there's still loss that's happening. There's still um, grieving that's going on and continuing to try to be, um, for me, right, the compassionate sort of uh, person that I've been lucky enough to have in in my journey. Um, And that is, um, how does that tie to anti-racism? Um, well, acknowledging that these statistics that are coming out now, right, that uh, first generation, uh, poor working class, and students of color are the ones most um, maybe dropping out or taking leave. Well, that that's, of course, we understand how that's tied to, to racism. So then that means working that much harder for those students you know, at this time. All right.
2: For the next question, I'm wondering if we could... Talk back to the experience. So you you all are leaders in the classroom, and I'm wondering, have you ever experienced pain points or pushbacks from difference in your philosophy or your anti-racist teaching or values from your department or from uh, courses, primary faculty, or whatever it is that you have um, at the institutional level?
5: Maybe maybe other graduate students or yeah. you know other peers. And then how have you reacted?
4: My department didn't really have much pushback, luckily for me. Um, They just let me do my whole thing without much oversight, uh, which was really awesome. And uh, I'm really grateful that they gave me the chance to teach in this very new-ish way or emerging novel way of giving power back to students. Sometimes in conversation with other grad students, they may be a little skeptical, but I just sort of hold my ground and remind, remind myself of the impact to students because I have students telling me all the time that they've never been given a voice like this, and I want to keep that up while also being mindful of, you know, the power dynamics and, like, they should just have a voice. They shouldn't need me to give them a voice. I want to uplift them in ways that honor their perspective and voice without bringing too much attention to myself. <laughs>
3: You know, I think I've been very lucky in that I have not had many uh, pain points or pushback uh, yet with uh, primary faculty in terms of my approach to teaching, my approach to anti racist teaching. Um, there have been, I can think of experiences when I was a uh, TA, a teacher's assistant, um, and a person I was TAing for t- teaching about racism in a way that was reducing it to individual bias, right? And for example, was teaching about um, racial bias within the court system and judicial system and uh, just, you know, concluding in like, yeah, sometimes some people are biased, right? And I, and I would try to, I would try to make suggestions like, hey, here are some documentaries that I think would take the conversation farther, documentaries like 13th, right? Or things like that. I, that person didn't take me up on any of my suggestions, I don't think, uh, which is not too surprising, but I've had other people that TA for that have TA for someone who was originally assigning a text by Malcolm Gladwell called the ethnic. Theory of plane crashes or something like that, which is a, in my view, a horribly xenophobic uh, uh, text. Um, And I've kind of provided the evidence and and the explanation of that to this instructor, and they were very open. Uh, They listened. Uh, They ended up removing that text from their syllabus and now uh, use some text that I recommended. And and so in that process, I've also learned from that instructor, right? Um, uh, Again, kind of. um, Reinforcing this value of. Of uh, you know, listening to students, and and I and I try to give my own students opportunities to um, give me feedback on my readings, right? Wh- which readings are too dense, too dry, just not connecting, and how I can continue to improve.
5: So, we want advice from you, as someone who is passionate. Uh, it seems like from what you're saying, you're passionate about anti-racist teaching. That's your You're cognizant, very deliberate, how you sort of, um, and are transformative in the ways that you you teach your classes and you want your students what you want your students to come out of it. So what advice would you give to others who want to engage in anti racist teaching broadly within engineering and sociology specifically?
4: Yeah, I think a lot about how scary it is to give up power and racism, systemic oppression, they're all about power. One of those powers, one of those binaries is student versus teacher. Inherently, when you're talking about racism or abolition or misogyny or any of these myriad of topics, you're putting part of your soul on the table. (laughs) And practicing that sort of strategic vulnerability is a real skill that you have to get used to. You also have to get used to ceding some of your power as an instructor to your students to lead that conversation, partake in that conversation, and entrust them to not hurt one another. And you also have to know when to intervene if you think they are harming each other with their rhetoric, their language, etc. So it's a fine line you have to draw, whereas it you have to keep a kill switch in your back pocket, (laughs) but you also have to do everything you can to be transparent, to be humble, to come in not claiming to be an expert. At least that's my experience as a white person who talks about race. I say from the day one of class, like I wanna talk about this, but I am not the expert and I don't want my voice to be centered. So I'm giving power to you to help lead this conversation. For most people, seating that power is scary, but the more you do it the easier it becomes so practice 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 and take small steps and work your way up to bigger and bigger projects
3: in terms of advice so i i learned in my master's program that unfortunately some instructors are done learning and i think as people whether we're instructors or not we should never be done learning so my advice is to you know, keep reading, keep refining, whether that be our syllabi, our or course readings, our activities, because in, in in terms of anti-racism, we know racism evolves over time, so we need to, too, right? Every semester, I'm trying to acknowledge the gaps uh, that remained in my syllabi, and and I'm, I'm never satisfied. I'm, I'm always trying to push uh, push myself right to 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 keep working and, and keep improving uh my course and i was i would hope that you know for example if i were to do this podcast five years from now that my answers my responses would be would sound very different and, and hopefully that would be this this product of of reflection and, and refinement in terms of sociology specifically i'll try to tie this a little bit but uh du bois right wdb du bois Continues to be uh, not only one of my favorite theorists, but favorite people because he was a person that uh, lived a long life and changed a lot throughout his life. Okay. Talented 10th Du Bois is very different, uh, right, from the Du Bois who passed in Ghana, uh, right, who was exiled from the United States. And so, also specifically to sociology, my advice to sociologists and who are anti. Uh, racist instructors to remind them that, you know, the boys isn't the only race scholar. Uh, I think we need to engage Du Bois, but he's not the only race scholar. And also that Du Bois has a whole body of work that we can pull from. And I think as important as the uh, souls of black folk is, for example, that there's a lot to learn from from later in life Du Bois as well.
4: Yeah, with regards to just like always being always learning. With regards to always learning, if you go back and read, you know, Pedagogy of Oppressed by Frere, um, and then you go and read some bell hooks, you'll realize that these pieces, their writings are in conversation with another. Frere wrote his piece, bell hooks responded with maybe some criticisms about, you know, misogynoir not recognizing these things. And then Frere modified, and then bell hooks modified. And so recognizing that no group is a monolith, there can be diverging thought even among people of the same category. That's really important. And to always be learning. I, th- I think pursuing your own anti-racist education is one of the most scientific things you can do. It's surprising, though not shocking, that a lot of scientists aren't, you know, up with anti-racist education. But where my journey started was just seeing okay, here's a gap in my knowledge, let me learn about this thing. It's like learning about any topic. If I wanted to go and learn about metal organic frameworks, I would, you know, talk to an expert of that field or read a paper by an expert of that field. So why do we feel as though, why why do us white people feel like we know everything about race without talking to people of color, without (laughs) reading works by people of color about their own experiences?
2: Omar, final thoughts?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think as a as an as an up and coming graduate student, I'm still in my second year of my PhD, and I think every conversation allows me the opportunity to recognize the gaps in my learning. And I think it teaches me how to be a better student. It teaches me how to be a better future instructor. And it also teaches me about the multi layered ways that we we both live through this experience other folks live through this experience and how. How we can build solidarity amongst each other, um, and I, I I love this sense that that the both of you Anna and Manny alluded to that's evolution, like we're always constantly changing. But I think that also denotes putting ourselves in uncomfortable situations, getting out of our comfort zone, and growing. That I think has has encouraged me to grow. I I moved cross country. I'm an immigrant. My parents are immigrants, and They're seeing their evolution, seeing my evolution, hearing about y'all's evolution. That's beautiful, that's progress, that's growth. And so I think the both, all of us really in this call embody evolution and growth. And so I'm just kind of echoing Stephanie's comments. I'm very excited for the future because I think all of us, you know, are kind of putting in practice what we want to see in the world, the change that we want to see. And I think that's the best thing we can do. It's a lot of work. A lot, a lot of work, but I just, yeah, I just want to commend you both for the awesome work that you're doing and just that this has been such a, such an amazing conversation. Yeah. I'll
5: pass it over to Stephanie and David. Thank you. No, we, we echo the appreciation for sure. We appreciate both of you uh, and taking the time with us.
4: Thank you so much for having
5: us.
3: Thank you so much, y'all. This is, this has been a great experience and and great to be in conversation with y'all.
2: As always, we're thankful for the support from the Office of Diversity and Inclusion and the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning at the University of Connecticut, because it takes a village and it takes heart.